When was the last time you stood outside, blanketed in darkness, and stared up at the vibrating night sky? When did you gaze upon the hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of stars in our solar system and beyond? Did you know that when you look back at those visible stars and planets, you're actually looking back into the past? Well, from a certain point of view. Light is the fastest traveling element in the universe. I mean, besides Star Wars collector's gossip. And the distance the light has to travel to reach us, where we can see it, is measured in light years. Light moves at 300,000 kilometers per second, or more than 186,000 miles. So if the moon is 238,000 miles from Earth, it takes about 1.3 light seconds for the light from the moon to reach us. The light we see from the sun travels 8.3 light minutes to Earth. And yet there are galaxies that are millions of light years away. And that means we are seeing light from, well, truly, from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And looking back on the past is a beautiful thing. It provides us with the lessons that light our paths forward. It shows us where we've been and how far we've come. And it gives us rich and resonant memories we can carry with us into the new year. And this past year was an exciting one for Star Wars collectors. In part one of our look back, we focused on some of the moments from the first half of the year, as outlined by the podcast episodes produced during each month. And so far, we've revisited the history of Hasbro's crowdfunded venture, HasLab, in January and February. The March episode centered around the Hakes 234 auction and its truly staggering results, as the collecting hype of the pandemic began to reach its peak. April was a break from the collector's market, and focused on the elements that made collecting so meaningful for so many of us. We explored a toy show, talked in depth about our hobby, toured our friend's amazing collection room, and celebrated the 10th anniversary of the Empire State Club with one of its co-founders. May's offering spotlighted the new and essential resource on Hasbro's The Vintage Collection line. We also sat together for another Ahsokaholics roundtable with five other fans and collectors of all things Ahsoka Tano. And we finished the first half of the year with a dive into the history of the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series, followed by a live report of our friends' experiences at this year's Star Wars Celebration Convention in Anaheim, California. And all of that was only part one. This is a look back at the second half of 2022, from a collector's perspective. This is an opportunity to bring the past to light in a unique and memorable way. This is the start to Season 5, after more than 100 podcast episodes. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production.
Coruscant to Tatooine, and every planet in between. Star Wars, prototypes and production, with your host, David Quinn. It's a trap! Yes, master. The more you tighten your grip, darling, the more star systems will slip to me your fingers. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. The Force will be with you. Always. July. I kicked off the second half of 2022 with help from a friend. Matt George and I reconnected to do a two-part series on the June premiere Star Wars Collectibles auction from Hakes. It was the auction house's first Star Wars-centric auction. Due to an influx of family issues occurring in June, I never had the chance to partner with Matt at the time of the auction. And even though the two of us revisited it a month after it ended, the premier Star Wars auction gave us some really interesting data leading up to July's 235 catalog edition. In each Hakes auction, there always seems to be one item that sells far beyond its range of its price estimate. And this one certainly delivered. Here is a clip that highlights this particular shocker. But before we get to that, though, I want to share a secret with you. In this series, Matt and I added an extra challenge to our coverage. We gave each other a few words or phrases that we had to work into the conversation at some point. Some were pretty straightforward, some were a little tricky, and some were completely ridiculous. The anticipation to see how and when Matt would use the words I gave him really made this conversation fun. And I had to mute myself at times because I was laughing at his clever insertions. So again, in this clip from episode 90, we talked about a shocking price for a particular item, and we managed to work in one of the challenges using a background character's name from one of the Star Wars prequel films. Okay, so this one we talked about in the first episode. Um, this one had my head spinning like Yariel Poof. Uh, this is lot number 78, and it's the Chewbacca inflatable bot bag, graded at an AFA 75. The As we talked about again, the original estimate was 400 to $700. Matt, do you know what this sold for? I mean, I, I pride myself on trying to stay on, on an even keel or an even peel, if you will. Um, but when I saw this, I, I had anecdotally heard about it before I saw what it hammered at. Um, and I, I, I was just shocked. Like, I, As someone who's tried to put a full run of box items together, I know how, how much harder the Chewy is than some of the other bot bags. But orders of magnitude different from where we thought it would end up to where it actually hammered. Like this piece is just, this is like, again, your, your Tuscan Raider analogy from the last auction. Uh, that's, that's this one from this auction. That's and yet I don't even think it fits outlier. into it. But, but yeah, the- it, it's such a rag. I, on a 12A Tuscan Raider, like I, I get it. Like it, it had like a lighter color of red on the, on the paint and right uh, which is the first release and uh, straight 85s i think too like it was it's if you're hunting that variant it is a premier piece and i get that people would go there it was you know obviously more than one person with this i mean i even did some research just to see if this was a 
different color or if it was possibly a prototype. Um, as I mentioned in the last episode, the listing is missing a photo of the AFA label. So, you know, with that, not, not having that, um, I thought that that would actually have hurt the sale. Um, but again, there was more than one person going all in on a Chewbacca inflatable bot bag. $8,709. So I, this one clearly tops the Tuscan Raider. I mean, th- this is the, the biggest head scratcher, um, you know. Yeah, this is by far the most inexplicable Star Wars toy item I've ever seen sell. Ever. Like, I can't think of another one like this. It's 1,200% higher than the high end of its range. (laughs) Episode 91 began with an in-depth recap of the 2019 annual event. In case you haven't listened to the series, the annual was a Star Wars-themed meetup hosted by the Empire State's Star Wars Collectors Club. For an entire weekend, 70 collectors stayed at a hotel in Fishkill, New York. In addition to touring some amazing Star Wars prototype and production collections in the area, we ate meals together, visited a sprawling flea market, and took a boat cruise on the Hudson River. But the main draw was a seven-hour event on Saturday in the hotel's ballroom. Collectors presented panels related to the world of Star Wars memorabilia, and we had a catered dinner and dessert together. And at the end of the evening, collectors bought, sold, and traded items at a room sales event, followed by a group trip to the diner adjacent to the hotel. The annual truly was one of my favorite collector events of all time. But when it comes to the podcast, for a while, it was my biggest regret. I had wanted to cover it in an episode in September of 2019, but became sidetracked with other collecting trips over the next few months. And once the pandemic hit and we were all quarantined, I finally had the time to reflect on that unforgettable weekend. With the collecting events, I find that with each month that passes, the details become fuzzier. The jokes that popped up during those times start to fade. The timeline begins to lose its shape. And the things we promised ourselves we'd never forget slowly slip through the crevices of our clasped hands. I wanted to capture what I could remember. And I enjoyed the challenge of trying to piece together the moments to form something that would last longer than what we held in our memories. So after the workday ended, I would sit outside in my backyard in the spring and summer of 2020 with my laptop. I went through the Empire State Club's social media pages in search of video and audio clips I could use in the episodes. I had recorded audio clips of my own during the event, so I compiled and logged them as well. Structuring the overall timeline was easy. As part of the event, we were given a schedule of when and where each of the activities would occur. However, the hard part was recounting what had happened at each activity, and how to tell each vignette in a way that would be interesting to those who had attended, as well as for those who weren't there, or weren't familiar with it, or the Empire State Club. And then there was the challenge of filling in the gaps. What happened in between the scheduled events? 
What did I experience personally, like the meals that weren't group ones, where I dined with a friend or two? What happened in the downtime at the hotels that was worth mentioning? Or if I had a piece of a moment to share, what happened leading up to it, or directly after it? Tackling the annual weekend as a series was the most overwhelming project I've done for the podcast. We often joke that it's hard to remember what we did yesterday. Imagine trying to remember the minute details of an entire long weekend that happened years earlier. So I first created an outline of all of the moments I could remember and wanted to cover. I started with the drive to Fishkill on that Friday morning at the end of August of 2019, and ended with heading back home that Monday. And as more memories surfaced, I added them to the outline. I found that the best approach was to not write about my experiences in the order in which they happened. Instead, I gave myself the freedom to jump around, tackling whatever memory felt the most vivid on a particular day. I was building a puzzle by slowly jigsawing and coloring in the pieces as best as I could remember from that larger, beautiful image. It wasn't long before I realized it would likely be a two-part episode. I continued to work on it in the summer of 2020, but it soon took a back seat as I ramped up my production on the then-current podcast episodes. Although the annual was intended to be an annual event in New York, the pandemic crushed any hopes of any consistency between the first one and future ones. The annual was a big production. It took a lot of planning, a lot of money, and a commitment from collectors, especially those traveling from long distances or from other countries. And with the possibility of another COVID outbreak at any time in 2020 and in 2021, Setting a date for a club-sponsored event just wasn't a viable option. But as life returned to its more familiar rhythm in 2022, the door opened for the Empire State Club to host the second annual. The creators of the event chose a weekend in mid-August and began planning the event. The date of the second annual gave me a goal for publishing the annual 2019 series. I aimed to release the episodes in the month leading up to the event in Fishkill, to give interested or curious collectors a fuller idea of what to expect from the 2022 weekend. I truly figured, if I was able to convey what made this first one so special, and if the episodes resonated with you, that you would want to join us for the next one. I revisited what I had written about the event in 2020 and was so thankful I had begun to put those memories on paper. At this point, almost three years had passed since the first annual, and it was even more difficult to remember the details. But knowing that I had wanted to release a series in the summer before the second Collector's Weekend pushed me to capture more of that first one, and quickly. However, as I mentioned in the previous episode, the events of the spring and summer with my family really affected my production schedule, and pushed back a lot of the episodes in the second half of the year. And while I wasn't able to publish any episodes in June of 2022, I used some of that time when I could to prepare the annual 2019 series. Working on it was really helpful. I started to get back into a rhythm again, 
and was able to focus on creating something I'd wanted to see happen for many years. It was encouraging, and I really tried to make it a listening experience that went beyond any previous collecting audio experience, if only for how in-depth it would be. I had arranged the annual 2019 coverage into an eight-part series. The second annual was a little more than a month away, which meant I would have to release a new episode every four days in order to finish the series before returning to Fishkill. I should also mention that I had been asked to do a live podcast panel for the 2022 annual. So in the midst of trying to produce this mammoth series, I was also working on the upcoming panel's script. It was a crazy month, and I still have no idea how I was able to complete everything by the deadline. I released the first episode of the annual 2019 series on July 10th. Episode 91 was a conversation with collector Ron Salvatore on how he created the event with Chris and Steph Riley. Hearing about the annual from Ron's perspective years later was fascinating. He also teased the upcoming second annual. Naturally, just wanting to expand that experience to kind of do something that's centered around the New York club um, is kind of a natural progression. And there's also, there's just so many, as you know, there's so many great people in our club, you know, in other clubs as well, but there's just a lot of great people. Um, a lot of them want to contribute, whether it's, you know, Hey, I'm going to throw some money at this to help you guys pay for everything, or I'm going to do some art for it, or I'm going to help you plan this or that. Um, it's a great, opportunity to collaborate and work on something like that with people. You know, I really love that. Like I love the collaborative process and coming up with all these things. Like I love working with Chris and Steph uh, and the other people who we've pulled in and just trying to plan our events and, you know, what we're going to give away and all this stuff and kind of make it the best we can. It's just fun for me. And it's, it's satisfying. You feel like you're doing something for your friends and for your club and, and for yourself, really, because, you know, it's something that you end up, I, I end up enjoying as much as everybody else. The next seven episodes, numbers 92 through 98, was a walk through the 2019 weekend. I split my recap into three episodes and interspersed segments that I and our friends had recorded. Here's a live update from the Stormville Flea Market that Saturday morning. It's about 7.45 now, and uh, just walking through. There's a whole section of the Stormville Flea Market that has um, food items, and I'm looking for honey right now. Uh, but it's just, it's been really nice to just walk around with Pete, Mike, Sandra, Corey, and Trent. Uh, we ran into Narayan, and uh, Rich from the UK is here uh, from the Vintage Rebellion podcast, and... Um, so he's, he's out hunting as well, too. And this is just one of the most amazing things that, that we, we get to do, you know, where we all come together as a group and we kind of all stay at the same hotel, go to the same places. And, uh, you know, it's just nice. And especially if you're just walking around somewhere and you happen to run into someone that you know, that, that's, for me, growing up, that was always special. And uh, so to see uh, collecting friends, it's, it's a nice little, little treat. Um, the sun has now come up and it's it's getting a little warmer, which is great, but it's still pretty cool. I was here last year and it was about 90 degrees 
Uh, it started. The morning started out really cold, uh, to the point where we we had to wear hooded sweatshirts, and then it just went up to about 90, and and it stayed at 90 for a long time. Um, so this is much nicer. I think it's only supposed to go up to 70. It's really a beautiful weekend. Uh, the hotel they picked for the annual is beautiful. We we hung out there last night, uh, probably till a little after midnight, at least for me. Um, oh, I just found some some Star Wars stuff, so. I'll be back. The first episode began with my arrival at the hotel on Friday evening and talked about the collector's meetup that night and the trip to the Stormville Flea Market Saturday morning. It ended right as the Saturday afternoon main event in the ballroom commenced, which was also titled The Annual. Episode 93 was a live recording of the first panel of The Annual that afternoon. It was an hour-long presentation that told the story of the Empire State Star Wars Club. And since it was an Empire State Club event, I was able to have a number of the members join me to share their funny and personal stories about attending their first meetups and what the club meant to them. Here are Sky Payne and Tom Quinn on the beginnings of the club. Several years before this club started, um, actually a long time ago, I went to a meeting of the Ohio Club. And I went there and like, no one was talking about vintage except for like three or four people. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about Gentle Giant. (laughs) So when I went back to California, I thought, what if we could have a club that was like just the people I want to talk to? So I started the the California club and then I moved and I left it with uh, Steve Danley, my friend and co-host. You're supposed to applaud for Steve. Stephen B. Danley. Um, And and then... uh, and then I, I thought, well, maybe I should try and do this in New York. But I just moved to Rochester, and I didn't really have the energy for it. And the thing is, is that it's really hard to start one of these clubs because people don't want to travel. Like, they say they want to do it, but, like, especially in California, no offense to members of the California club, <laughs> getting people from L.A. to go to San Francisco or San Francisco to go to L.A. is, like, impossible. So when, when Tom first contacted me about this, I knew Jason from the boards. I didn't really know Tom because he's a real lurker. Um, just say something negative about you, Tom, while we all love you so much. Um, and, and so he was like, it'd be really great if you could come and we're going to be doing this club. And so I really didn't think it was going to be great. I have to be honest. I didn't think it was going to be great, but I said, I'm going to go all in. And so I made a banner, which is basically wow. the rough draft of what we have now. And I said, I don't care how far away. It was four hours away. And I knew it was just going to be me and like two other people, but I'm like, this is how we have to start, and this is how we have to get people here. And to, I think, Tom and Jason's credit, the way they run the club, uh, how with it they are, like how on top of it getting people invited, um, it was pretty clear, even though the first meeting was just the four of us, uh, I actually felt positive at the end of it, like this is going to work. Is that how you remember it, Tom? Well, I was very happy that you came because I was going to steal every idea that you had for the California club. (laughs) That was my idea. At the time, I believe the California club had 40 members in it. And my goal was to someday reach that 40 people mark as I look at just about 80 people in the room right here. So, um, you know, I, I just wanted to steal ideas. So I was glad you showed up. But, 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 but Sky drove five hours that night. And Mike came and met people that, that he didn't know. And, and that was the start of things. And, and the thing that I took away from, from that night is that I made friends that night. That was, that was the key, that, that I wanted these guys best, and they wanted each other's best. 
that we, we had decided in, in some strange way that we wanted to, to actually encourage one another in the hobby as opposed to be, um, oh, I'm going to get this before you do. I think that was, that was something that we decided from that point on that we wanted to, we wanted to really focus on. Episode 94 featured part two of my recap, starting after my panel ended. It covered the dinner and the other panels of Saturday's annual event. And the rest of the episode highlighted the late night trip to the diner, Sunday morning touring Ron's collection, the boat cruise, and the dinner at a shoreline restaurant. Here is a clip from the episode from the Saturday night room sales. I wanted to take you through the room sales to give you an idea of some of the rare and desirable items our friends offered that night. In the time between taking the event swag up to my room and returning to the main floor, the ballroom had transformed from a banquet hall to a toy and collectibles bazaar. The tables had been cleared of everything but their black fabric tablecloths to make way for the Star Wars and late 20th century memorabilia that would be scattered among them. An incredibly rare Japanese Takara wind-up R2-D2 figure counter display from 1978 sat on top of an original Dagobah playset cardboard shipping box on Pete LaRose's table. The counter display was empty except for two wind-up R2-D2s but it is a piece that rarely, if ever, comes up for sale, since so few exist. This one was gorgeous, with the Star Wars logo forming from the lightning-shaped take on the iconic racetrack design of the Kenner packaging on the lip of the display. The header had the same racetrack-inspired logo, with a large, vibrant photo of R2-D2 standing a dome taller than the rest of it. R2 was outlined in black, and in this image, the droid had rust-colored highlights, and his usual blue details were instead black. It made this image even more striking and noticeable. Behind the counter display was a carded and graded Italian Darth Vader figure bearing the nameplate Lord Darth Fenner. Next to it sat a Lego Force Awakens shelf display and a massive molded plastic Revenge of the Sith action figure store display with Darth Vader's helmet over a splatter of three-dimensional lava bursts. Below the Dagobah shipping box was the original Star Wars Toy Galaxy display sign. Also on Pete's table were gems like Star Wars Lego proof sheets from some of the smaller sets, the 12-inch Revenge of the Sith Chewbacca hard copy in a stunning azure blue, along with vintage Kenner 12-inch action figures and a complete Sonic Landspeeder. Episode 95 was a replay of the Collector's Roundtable I did with seven other friends that Sunday night. Trent and Corey Bailey, Justin Haney, Jen Thunders, Brian Angel, Bill Cable, and Matt George and I gathered around a table in my hotel room after dinner. And over the course of two hours, we discussed our experiences at the annual. And it was one of the most enjoyable, most connective, and funniest collector conversations I've ever had. Episode 96 was the third and final part of my annual 2019 recap. It's a personal favorite of mine. In it, I recount the wild night that we had after the roundtable discussion. Honestly, it's one of those episodes you have to hear to truly understand it, 
but it began with a ride to a diner and ended with us dancing to Michael Jackson's Thriller outside of the hotel at 2.30 in the morning. For me, it was a perfect ending to the weekend, and it had everything responsible for building bonds between friends. Near-death experiences, deep conversations over a meal, and those ridiculously funny moments we still talk about years later. I wanted to include a segment from the episode that was an absolute joy to put together. It includes some audio from episode 97, in which our roundtable group reunited to look back on that night three years later, ahead of the second annual. So here it is, our memorable trip to Fishkill's Red Line Diner. As we drove to the diner, I remember wondering if any of us were going to wind up in jail that night. That's the kind of feeling the trip had at that point. The main goal, I had decided, was to not get arrested and to not die. And here's Matt in the car ahead of us to share the story he remembers from that drive. I will say that I was in the passenger seat while B.A. was driving, and for some reason, like what I remember most about the drive over was not the speed. It was, for some reason, I felt like there was like those those concrete dividers right by this, you know, dividing the two lanes of the street. I thought it would be a good idea to try to touch one of them while we were driving. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I couldn't touch it because it was too far away. And I didn't think like trying to stick all my body out the window was a good idea. But as I was pulling my arm back in for the last time and like abandoning all hope of ever touching it, a sign that I didn't even see oh like came within about like less than a foot of like hitting my arm. And I don't know what would have happened then. I wouldn't have felt it, but uh, it would have ruined the night. It would have been a fun night. As we approached the diner, we somehow lost track of Brian and the Yaris. Trent was helping me locate the entrance and Bill and Corey were keeping an eye out for the missing car we had been following only a minute earlier. Out of nowhere, the Yaris came barreling across our path perpendicular to the direction in which I was driving, and swept into the diner. We followed it as it swerved like a race car around to the back of the diner, where we were instantly greeted by a swarm of seven police cars. Parked police cars. In the side window of the diner, I could see a fleet of officers sitting around a table for a midnight meal. Pulling into a spot, we got out, and I ran ahead to catch those who were in the Aris. We can't go in there, I pleaded. It'll be fine, Matt said. Brian has no shoes on, I replied. And Brian confidently said, I got this, and bounded up the steps into the diner. Recently, we reunited to do another roundtable discussion about that evening. During our chat, I asked everyone to think back and to assess their sobriety during that diner trip. From a one to a ten with one being completely sober and ten being, well, completely not sober. Here was Justin's response. I was, I was at the diner, I believe, <laughs> and, and I was transported there by Mario Kart. I remember. Uh, for those of you in the car, you might remember that. And um, 
we there were some turtle shells. There were turtle shells, bananas being thrown our way, and we decided to park behind the building because it would be safe right in front of the seven police officers. It was a safety measure. I feel like I feel like parking is generous, seeing as I like screeched into the spot. <laughs> and here was Jen's response. I remember being at the diner, but I was to the point that I apparently I brought a beer into the diner and was drinking in the open and didn't think that was like a problem until Justin was like, you can't have a beer in a diner. And I'm like, what? I'm drinking it. For the record, when we got out of the car, I said, there's seven police officers in front of us enjoying their dinner at the diner. Don't bring the beer in. And she goes, it's not a big deal. (laughs) So that's about an eight. (laughs) It could have been worse, but it could have been, you know, could have been better. August. August continued the annual 2019 series with episode 97's Roundtable Reunion. Revisiting that magical night as a group three years later was incredibly special. And I think that conversation captured the essence of what made the original Roundtable so memorable. Amid the craziness and humor that peppered the chat was a heartfelt and connective conversation that celebrated the friendships from this unexpected journey we've all taken together. And if you listen to it, I hope it encourages you to step out of your comfort zone and to attend a collector's meetup. I published the Roundtable Reunion on August 7th, a few days before the second annual. And two days before I left for Fishkill, I released the eighth and final episode of the 2019 annual series. After telling the story of the first event from my perspective... I wanted to create an episode in which those who had attended the annual recounted their memories from it. And my goal was to finish it in time that the collectors who were traveling to New York for the second annual that weekend would have something to listen to during their ride or flight. I arranged our friends' stories in chronological order to match what I had done with the earlier episodes. Bob Els, Jonathan McElwain, John Paul Ragusa, and Blake Morgan shared funny and joyful moments from when each of them arrived on Friday, ahead of the event. Dan Loisel talked about the impromptu Saturday morning adventure that started with a walk down to the lobby for an early morning cup of coffee and led to an unexpected trip with a few collectors to the Stormville flea market and to a local toy shop. Chris Vargas, Hector and Sam Hilario, and Mike Cooper relived moments from the Sunday boat cruise. Chris Trogulius, Narayan Nike, and Ron Salvatore recapped the Monday trip to Yehuda Kleinman's home. Justin Haney reminisced about the friendships that had developed during the event. Mike DiStefano shared a touching moment he had with another collector at the end of the weekend. And first-timers Andrew Agnello and F.J.D. Robertus talked about what they were anticipating at the 2022 event. And here is a clip of our friend Joe O'Neill recounting a prank that Duncan Jenkins, one of the nicest and most knowledgeable collectors, pulled on him during the room sales event. A couple of my favorite stories from that weekend were during the uh, the room sale. Uh-huh. So Mike Ritter comes over 
with uh, with Duncan Jenkins, and I don't know Duncan that well. I met him like once in, once in passing before, but he comes over with Ritter, and I had uh, a set of Burger King Return of the Jedi glasses. And they were shrink-wrapped. There was, you know, cardboard to support the four glasses on top and bottom, and the whole thing was shrink-wrapped. And uh, Duncan comes over, and he's like, oh, yeah, this is a salesman sample. You don't see him that often. It's worth, you know, probably about $600. And I'm thinking, oh, that's terrific. You know, these Return of the Jedi glasses, typically they're like 10 bucks a piece, if that. Everybody's got them. So to, to know that, that they're rare and, you know, that'll help pay for the trip. <laughs> and then as, as Mike Ritter... He's standing next to him. All of a sudden, he just breaks out in laughter. He says, yeah, I I put Duncan up to it to come over and tell you that they were rare and expensive. (laughs) He's like, it might be worth 50 bucks or so, but not 600. So thanks for that, Ritter. Love you, buddy. At the end of the week, after somehow finishing the 2019 annual series and outlining the panel for the 2022 event, I returned to Fishkill for the second annual. Ron, Chris, Steph, and Yehuda put on another memorable collector's meetup. Mark Rusciano, who produced Saturday's panel segment, kindly recorded my podcast panel so I could share it with you in episode 99. The panel focused on some of the amazing finds our friends have had over the decades of collecting vintage Star Wars figures and prototypes. For the panel, I spoke with Matt George about acquiring one of the earliest and most iconic Darth Vader pieces. He also shared one of the most magical collecting stories, this one being about, of all things, a very special chair. Ron took us back to his earliest days of collecting, to a meeting with a collector who sold Ron hundreds of vintage Star Wars items, many of which are part of his world-class collection today. And I asked Eric Janicki to tell his story behind one of the most important finds in the Star Wars collecting world. How he stumbled upon the only carded, rocket-firing Boba Fett in existence. So, it was in 99. Um, we had some uh, family over for, uh, it was a holiday, I forget which one it was. And my brother-in-law goes, hey, I just got back from Annapolis Mall, and this dude says he has a carded rocket Fett. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, I know that guy. He says, he says, yeah, but it's on a card. You know, it's like, it's all in a package. And I'm like, well, that's kind of new to the story. Like, he never told me that before. I don't recall, you know. And then I had another buddy who came and said, hey, have you talked to that, you know, that, that clown at the bookstore who says he has a rocket fed? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when he said he had a carded rocket fed, it all changed for me. So I went back and talked to the guy, and I was like, tell me the story again of what you think you have. And so he, he told me the story, and um, basically he worked, back in 1979, he worked for a retail store outlet that had credentials to get into the New York Toy Fair. And he had a buddy who worked, I think, for Woolworths or Woolco, whatever that store was called, and he also was able to get into the Toy Fair. So him and his buddy went to Toy Fair, and his buddy knew that this guy loved Star Wars. So we went to the Kenner booth at Toy Fair, and at the end of Toy Fair, he swiped this, this figure from their booth. When, and, you, when you say swiped, you mean just straight pulled it off the wall, right? So the way it was presented to me is, he did not have permission to take it, I don't think, but somehow 
He got it. Yeah, he might have yahooted it, maybe. But he knew his buddy loved Star Wars, so he instantly gave it to his buddy and said, hey, the people at this booth said this is the, the latest and greatest new figure, and I thought you would want it. So this guy, the Walden Books employee, to, or the, the future Walden, you know, the, the guy who I met at Walden Books, took it home and then just kept it for years. Doing a Star Wars-themed panel with Ron, Matt, and Eric was something I'll never forget. This hobby has been a blessing, and without it, I don't know if I would have met them. Being in the same room with them again, hearing about their amazing finds, and conversing with them in front of our friends and peers is one of those moments that will always mark the incredible weekend in August 2022 at the second annual. September. Episode 100 was supposed to come out in August, but there was a huge problem. I didn't have an idea for it. I mean, I had a number of possible topics in mind, but nothing that was truly worthy of celebrating the milestone of producing and publishing 100 episodes of something. When I told my Empire State Club buddy Tyler Fedigan about my plan to cover the second annual for the 100th, He stopped me immediately. He encouraged me to make it special, to put more of myself into it, and to take some time to find the right topic instead. I was relieved at his advice. After covering the annual for the past nine episodes, I needed a break from thinking about the event. The second one had just occurred the week before, and it was still a blur in my mind. I couldn't remember the last time I'd hit a roadblock while conceiving an episode. I tried to play down the fact that it was episode 100. I tried to be nonchalant about it, and to continue at the pace that had led me to that point. Still, the idea for it evaded me. The truth is, I wanted it to be special. The podcast has been one of those dream projects for me. You know, the kind that you tell your friends and loved ones, I'd love to do something like this someday. Except I was able to follow through on this one and turn it into something real. And for 99 episodes, I had recorded and spoke about two things I loved, Star Wars and the community of collectors. I expected to begin putting this episode together shortly. But a week went by, and the sign in my mind announcing the next idea never lit. I forced myself to go in a direction that I abandoned quickly, and another that fell flat as well. Instead of feeling dejected, I began to see the 100th episode in a different light. It became another challenge to overcome, another puzzle to solve. Because the answer was out there, I just needed to land upon it. I started to use every moment in which I was alone and could think to figure out how I could use this episode to encapsulate everything I loved about the hobby. I wanted it to cover prototypes and production items from the Star Wars universe, and I felt it had to cover the Kenner figures as well as the modern ones from the Hasbro era. So it would make sense that it would be about the collectibles. But the podcast has always been about more than the collectibles themselves. It was about the people we'd get to know through our collecting endeavors. 
and I felt the episode should capture the excitement, the frustrations, the friendships, the scores, and the adventures that make our community so vibrant and meaningful. And what had taken two weeks of processing suddenly revealed itself to me. The 100th episode would be made up of 10 personal collecting stories, highlighting some of the amazing finds I've had over the years. But it was the stories behind the finds, and the people involved with them, that made these finds worth sharing. I created vignettes that covered the past decade since becoming a serious collector. The first half focused on the original Kenner figures. One of my first major carded figure purchases happened through the kindness of Rob Bruce, a longtime collector who had become a mentor to me. Another short story explained how I finally located the perfect example of my favorite carded figure ever produced, a Blue Saber Luke Jedi, after five years of patiently searching. I talked about how I found two sealed Power of the Force skiffs in the same week, and how mistakenly overpaying for vintage carded figures and a proof card due to an error in converting currency actually turned out to be a blessing. Here's a clip from that vignette. I proceeded to win six more lots. A 65A Blue Saber Luke Jedi graded at an 85 was another one that I was happy to add, as a compliment to my 65B Luke. I also snagged a cheap pop loop Power of the Force carded figure, graded at a 70, but with a rare clear bubble. The rest were all high-grade Power of the Force figures at an 85 or higher. Lando General, Luke in Battle Poncho, a Tebow, and one that had evaded my grasp for years, a Han Solo in trench coat. I had picked up more figures that morning than I had planned, and had certainly spent more money, but I got each one for what I thought was a great price. Or at least, what I thought was a great price, until I received the invoice a few days later. Very simply, on the day of the auction, my 5am brain was foggy enough to get the conversion wrong. Instead of increasing the cost as I shifted from dollars to pounds by 30%, I did the opposite. And as a result, I got everything wrong. The final price, the tax, and the total. And the second half of the episode highlighted some of my modern prototype purchases. How an annual trip to the Columbus Toy Show in Ohio opened the door to some Power of the Force 2 mock-ups, a Rancor and a Bantha set. And I talked about the seemingly impossible challenge of trying to collect prototypes for a rare Clone Wars figure 4-pack, as well as putting together a pre-production set of the Rebels crew from the beloved animated series. And how taking a chance on three Black Series first shots led me down the path to collecting prototypes from that line. I remember recording the final part of the episode outside, in my backyard, after the sun had set. I loved that moment, and was thankful to have captured it on that warm summer night. Here's a snippet of it, a message of thanks for joining me on this blessing of a tour through the galaxy. And finally, I wanted to personally thank you. In life, time is so precious, and you have taken time out of your day to join me for the stories, toy trips, and conversations over the past 100 episodes. I hope the episodes have inspired you, 
encouraged you to collect and to connect with others, and at the very least, brought you a piece of the heart that makes our hobby meaningful. I'm going to leave you with a simple challenge. Today or tomorrow, make someone else's day a little brighter. If you know other collectors, just do something for one of them to let them know you were thinking of them. And if you don't know any collectors yet, either seek one out or just try to encourage someone else around you. Do that for the next three days. And if you like the results, try it for a week. We have the power to make this world a little better, a little more connective, and it begins with tiny acts of kindness. And as all of the good Star Wars stories have shown us, amazing things happen in the company of our friends. The 100th episode is one of my personal favorite episodes from all four seasons. Figuring out the right topic, reflecting on the past decade of collecting, and finally publishing it was a meaningful and satisfying accomplishment. For an episode that came out later in the year, it reinvigorated me. It encouraged me to never settle, and that the right ideas will come if I put the time into cultivating them. And like the rest of the podcast, it really is a love letter to the films, figures, and friendships that make our hobby worthwhile. If you were just getting to know me on the podcast, this is probably one of the episodes I'd play for you. And shortly after I released the 100th episode, Tyler sent me a quick text about it to let me know it had resonated with him. The message was short, but I'll never forget it. It contained three words. Best episode ever. After covering the Vintage Collection Archive Edition book in the first half of the year, I wanted to publish a conversation with my friend Anthony Pagano. Anthony and I had been trying to do an episode together for a while, and I wanted to give him a platform where he could showcase pieces from his incredible collection. Anthony has curated one of the largest vintage collection prototype collections in the world, and his passion for the line is infectious. And some of his prototypes made it into the vintage collection book as well. Over the past three years, there has been a resurgence in interest in the vintage collection. Collectors have clamored for certain rare items as the prices rose, but the truly rare pieces are prototypes from that era. And Anthony has about 600 pre-production items, ranging from hand-painted hard copies to the mock-ups and carded samples that led to the production examples we purchased at retail. When it comes to collecting modern prototypes, Anthony has been a mentor to me. But even more importantly, He's a true friend, and I'm so thankful to have had someone like him with whom to explore the toys and the history of Hasbro's Star Wars offering. Here's a piece of our conversation from episode 101, where Anthony explains one of the key gems in his collection, the original pitch piece for what would eventually become the vintage collection line. I picked up from the the original employee who who uh, whose idea it was to create this line uh, I was able to to get the the actual pitch piece the his his concept uh sketch artwork that he 
he drew out onto a sheet of paper, um, kind of a, a a couple of couple of rough sketches of what the card back would look like, and uh, he he wanted to pitch this idea to have the the vintage vintage style card backs uh, again. So that was in 2002, actually during the Saga line, and uh, he wanted to call it the Classic Collection. So it was they originally supposed to have uh, an electronic feature. Uh, he named it the the, the T I N K Tink uh, chip. I, I believe it was supposed to be in each each card back, or it would attach to each card back and have a little try me button, and it would play uh, different different sound effects and music from the the movies. So um, I've got that that sketch where he he drew all this out and. There's a, a list of figures, uh, proposed figures on the back that he explained to me. He he wanted to go through and create the Star Wars card backs with the original 12 figures first and then start doing the Empire Strikes Back card backs and Return of the Jedi after that. And he would re-release some of the, uh, or Hasbro would re-release some of the figures uh, from the, the Star Wars card backs, those original 12, onto the, the different Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi card backs, but each time they would release them, they would be produced in limited numbers, uh, almost making them like a chase kind of figure. So, the uh, that's probably one of my one of my favorite, uh, I guess, early conceptual pieces. Uh, and then when I got that from him, he also threw in he, uh, I guess, created some some slides uh, for that presentation to Lucasfilm. And threw in uh, with that sheet of paper the, the original printouts of those slides that had the uh, the presentation artwork that they pitched to uh, the Hasbro on it, or to Lucasfilm on it. September's episode offering ended with a last minute decision, similar to how I created the episode highlighting the history of the Obi Wan series just days before the show premiered on Disney Plus. This time, it was for another Disney Plus show making its debut. I had published my conversation with Anthony on Tuesday, September 13th, and had taken a few days' break before beginning work on the next episode. As I sat at my computer that Friday evening, I was researching a topic when a familiar thought crossed my mind. I realized the live-action Andor series was premiering in the middle of the upcoming week, and I said those dreaded words... I wish I had done an episode about the history of Andor. I immediately buried my head in my hands. It was Friday, and the premiere was Wednesday. That gave me exactly four days to produce an episode. And just like how I began the Obi-Wan episode, I stayed up until the early hours of Saturday morning researching Andor's journey. From the initial announcement in 2018 to the reasons for its last-minute shift to a September 21st premiere. It's one of the episodes I'm happiest to have produced last year. After being disappointed with how the Book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan series turned out, my expectations for live-action Star Wars shows diminished greatly. But in learning about how Tony Gilroy seemingly found the right approach to the Andor series, and what he and the team put into making it, publishing the podcast episode was a fantastic primer for what became one of my favorite live-action Star Wars stories of all time.
This clip from episode 102 highlights the clash in the vision for the series between Gilroy and Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy, and how Andor would eventually fall into Gilroy's hands. Shortly after Rogue One's release, Gilroy recounted a conversation he had with Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy. For Kennedy, the film gave the Lucasfilm team confidence in expanding the world of Star Wars stories beyond those centered around the Jedi, or anyone with the last name Skywalker. The idea of exploring characters outside the spotlight, ones whose lives would be impacted by a galactic battle with the Empire, intrigued Gilroy. During the earliest phase of development in 2018, Kennedy sent the treatment for the proposed Andor series to Gilroy to hear his thoughts about it. Gilroy responded by saying, It's Cassian and K2SO storming the Citadel for 20 episodes. I don't think you can do that. His solution, which he sent to Kennedy in a memo, was immediately rejected. Gilroy's vision for the series was to avoid the trappings of what could amount to a forgettable buddy adventure, and to instead double down on a darker tone that showed the building of a morally complex character who ultimately sacrifices his life to save the galaxy. To Gilroy, the path Cassian takes from a child dropped into a battle, to a young man operating as a mercenary, to a leader eventually stepping into the role of a revolutionary, would have been a story worth telling. October. October opened with a trip to the Delaware Toy Show. The skies seem to open whenever I have to travel out of state for a show, and I experienced one of the heaviest downpours that Sunday afternoon. In fact, I had to stay at the show for an extra hour or two as I waited for the rain to stop. I couldn't even get back to my car without getting completely drenched. But the extra time spent in Delaware was a blessing. It was a perfect day. I was able to spend a lot of time with my dear friend Pete LaRose at his table, and I had the chance to walk around the show with his little daughter Audrey as she shopped for toys. And I was able to hang out with Mike Mensinger and Rich Delgatti as they shopped for different toys. Unlike Audrey, they were not looking for tiny rabbits and dresses. Eric Janicki, who I hope you all know now as the one and only Yanache, was a vendor there and he and I were able to catch up in person for the first time since the annual. And I was able to speak with another wonderful friend, Ben Leach. Ben and I had hung out at RetroCon the week before, and he shared a fascinating Star Wars micro-machine story there. At Delaware, I asked Ben to recount that story for you. So this is an anecdote that came from a former Galoob employee. Um, I, 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 my interest in these obscure toy lines has led me to, uh, you know, toy research, track down prototypes and other material that uh, employees might have saved. But I always try and get interesting <laughs> stories out of it. So this story comes from a former Galoob employee who was there at the end of Galoob, uh, what we know as Galoob, like when they were using the Galoob logo. 
And um, basically what happened was when Hasbro renegotiated their contract with Lucasfilm pre-episode one, there was a certain number that they had to meet in terms of sales. The, you're talking about the entire Star Wars line had to meet. Had to right, right. That Hasbro had to meet to guarantee the because they were trying to do this bidding war mm-hmm. uh, with other companies because and Lucasfilm was so desirable at that. Point. Right, and the prequels were like the the guaranteed money maker at that point. Like it's like it's the first new Star Wars movie, you know, based on the sales of old, and, and then. By that point, you'd had so many people become collectors, um, you know, people that were kids in the 70s and 80s now had this expendable budget, so they, they, they knew... 16 years of hype, and all of a sudden... Right. Yeah. And then if they could meet those ridiculously high sales figures in that first year, then they, they had the license on lockdown for however long they've had. I'm sure they've renegotiated several times in the last couple of decades. Um, but that, but there, there was this... If they had, if Hasbro had just done the three three quarter inch line, even if it sold gangbusters, even if all these stores ordered, which many did, mm-hmm. it wasn't enough. It wasn't going to be enough to reach this high number that Lucasfilm had set. Mm-hmm. So, in order to meet that number, uh, again, this is the anecdote that was told to me by the Galoob employee. They had to build their portfolio. So. Galoob, Tiger, any company that basically had the Star Wars license already, Mm -hmm. um, it was economically more sensible for Hasbro to just buy these companies outright because they had the Star Wars license already and then add those to the sales figures that they needed to meet and then only by doing that were they going to be able to meet that goal that Lucasfilm had set for them. So that's why, so there was this big consolidation in the late 90s that was spurred on by episode one uh, where that's why Galoo ceased to exist. They were doing fine as a company. It's just Hasbro was like, we need to meet these numbers and if you fall under us, then we get to retain this, you know, money making, which again, they still have the Star Wars license to this day. So clearly it panned out for them. Uh, but it's a shame because, you know, Galoob was kind of their own thing. And, uh, you know, as there's been a couple of attempts to revive the Micro Machines brand since then, but to varying degrees of success, but nothing and like... the same... Yeah, yeah it's, it's never quite been the same. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a shame when a company as successful as Galoob was absorbed under those circumstances. A lot of consolidation happening, uh, you know, corporate consolidation happening as a result of Star Wars, which we all love Star Wars, but, you know... It is a machine. It's yeah, an empire. Yeah, it is an empire unto <laughs> itself. So I just found that interesting, you know, coming from the perspective of someone who lost out on that. I mean, he lost his job as a result because they, you know, he didn't want to relocate to Rhode Island. So, you know, I mean, that was it for him and many other people that worked at the Loop. So, um, so it's kind of, you know, there are unfortunate casualties as a result of that. And, and ultimately the Micro Machines brand, uh, you know, just didn't survive as as a result of that merger so i wasn't able to attend this year's annual cincinnati toy show weekend the collectors who were able to be there shared some memories with me after the event 
and I asked them if they would record conversations for a series about their weekend in Ohio. For the series, I spoke to two sets of collectors for each of the three episodes. And while some of the collectors attended events together, like the toy show or the room sales, each person's perspective on the event was unique. The conversations gave a fuller sense of what this year's trip was like, highlighted by moments like an impromptu trip to a toy designer's studio and a vendor arriving at the show with more than 300 carded vintage Star Wars figures for sale. And like the celebration recap earlier in the year, these Cincinnati episodes only came together through the kindness of our friends. I want to thank Dan Uthman, David Kevin White, Vicki Bitter, Mike Esposito, Tony Kramer, Jim McCallum, and Tony Johnson for taking the time out to paint a vivid picture for all of us of the annual pilgrimage to Kenner Country. To hear about their adventures, check out episodes 104, 105, and 106 in a series titled Collectors Share Stories from the Legendary Cincinnati Toy Show Weekend. October's final episode came out the day before Halloween and is one of my favorites of the year. It's episode 108 and is titled The Decade of Star Wars Under Disney, The Deal That Changed Everything. The 10th anniversary of the day George Lucas turned Lucasfilm and Star Wars over to Disney was approaching, and I wanted to tell the story of how that seismic deal actually happened. I timed the episode's release to fall on October 30th, which was the actual anniversary of the decade under Disney. The story behind the acquisition is fascinating, and if you haven't listened to the episode yet, I'd strongly recommend it. I remember learning about the Disney deal between George Lucas and Bob Iger, but I never fully had a grasp on how or why it had happened. And I wanted to know how someone like Lucas could part with something he had created and cultivated for more than 30 years. While researching the topic, I stumbled upon a quote that completely shocked me. It happened in 2004, years before the sequel trilogy would ever be announced. And I was able to find an audio clip from 1983 that supported Mark Hamill's incredible story about Lucas's vision for the Skywalker saga. I'd like to play you the segment from episode 108 now, and I think you'll find it very interesting. If George Lucas had revisited his plans for a third trilogy in the time after first meeting with Bob Iger, when did these sequel ideas actually originate? The answer goes back farther than you or I may have imagined. During a press junket to promote the 2004 release of the Star Wars Trilogy DVD box set, Actor Mark Hamill, who portrayed Luke Skywalker, shared some of the earliest conversations he had with Lucas about future Star Wars trilogies. Hamill said, He talked about doing a 7, 8, 9. You know, when I first did this, it was four trilogies, 12 movies, and out on the desert, any time between setups, lots of free time. And George was talking about this whole thing. I said to him, why are you starting with four, five, and six? It's crazy. And he said, it's the most commercial section of the movie. He said the first trilogy is darker, more serious. And the impression I got, he said, 
Um, how would you like to be in episode 9? This is 1976. When is that going to be, I said. 2011, he said. I defy anyone to add 36 years to their lives and not be stunned. Even an 8-year-old is like, no, I'll, I'll never be 47. So I did the math and figured out how old I'd be. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, you'll just be like a cameo. You'll be like Obi-Wan handing the lightsaber down to the next new hope. And I'm thinking, I love the guy. If he wanted me to do light yard work at his house, I'd be out clipping the hedges. So I went, sure. But I thought he'd just realize that he's not going to be doing it the rest of his life and he'd rather not do that. This was supported by an on-air interview Hamill did back in 1983, where he first shared part of that story. So loyal to George, and I owe him so much. He at one time said, would you consider playing an Obi-Wan-type character handing Excalibur down to the next generation? I said, when that, would that be? And at the time, he said, around, all around 2011. Mm. I thought, gee, I, as much as I'd like to have a job lined up at the turn of the century, I was figuring out how old I'd be at that point, and I thought, uh, well, I don't know. November. One of the highlights of working on the podcast has been connecting with some of the people who worked on the Star Wars toy line. Earlier in the year, a friend introduced me to Kathy Vaness, Kenner's senior manager of soft goods and doll design from 1979 to 1990. Kathy had a hand in designing the cloaks, capes, and soft goods for the three and three quarter inch figures and the large size action figures. She also worked on the plush toys from that era, and she even developed the unproduced Talking Yoda toy. Kathy's superpower is that she's a problem solver. She approached her work with a sense of confidence that she would be able to figure out whatever issue arose, and that there was always a solution. And she had the creativity to overcome these daily obstacles. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed getting to know Kathy. I came away from our first conversation completely inspired by her. Getting a peek into how her mind worked and how she continued to challenge herself throughout her 50-year career in the toy industry impacted me in such a positive way. During the era of Return of the Jedi, Kathy was tasked with bringing the Ewok Wicket W. Warwick to life as a plush toy. In this clip from episode 109, Kathy shares an unforgettable moment receiving true praise from the master himself. The Ewoks came in this, I think it was the second movie. And so naturally they would come to my area and say, well, you know, stuffed toy. And I got to go to California to see the actual Ewoks and see what they look like and how they walked around and all that stuff. So that was really very interesting. We, it was a lengthy, lengthy process because we um, had to keep bringing it to, sending it out to California to get approved. So finally, everybody got real excited about them, and I took them out 
uh, because each marketing person that would bring it out there would come back with vague corrections, like make it a little bit fatter, make him a little bit taller, make him a little bit something. And I never could figure out what a little bit is because each person that told me was a different size person. <laughs> so if you're five foot four and a little bit and a little stout, a little bit is a little more than somebody five foot 11 that's thin. So it got to be, we couldn't get the final, final approval. And, and so Dave says, you know, why don't you just go out there with your Ewok? So I went out with Kathy Kavanaugh and Howard Bollinger and the three of us went to uh, Lucasfilm and George Lucas came and he got, and he looked at the Ewok and he said, wow, this is really friendly. He would say these words, like all the things that a toy is. And he actually said to Sid, who was one of the other people in his group, that if he had seen the Ewok toy prior to the movie, he would have had the costumes done to look more friendly like the toy, which probably to this day was a moment in time for somebody who was starstruck sitting in a chair, mute and stunned. And I said, oh, this is the greatest moment of my toy career that the licensing person who I had so much respect for liked it that much. So that was a moment. And it became very popular at Kenner, the Ewok. And I want to share one more clip, this time from episode 110. In it, Kathy recounts working on the cloak for the diminutive and iconic Yoda figure from The Empire Strikes Back. Well, he was like missing in action and we knew he was coming soon to the department and he, they would come, I would be supporting my, my little group supported the boys area. So they came around and said, we're going to need a little coat for this guy. So we don't have any fabric for him. We have pink and we have greens, aquas, lavenders. We don't have any brown. We don't have any olive green. We don't have any Star Wars fabric. We would have to go out, buy clothing and cut it up. So we'd buy XXXX large and then we'd cut out a couple of pieces. And so here we have this tiny little Yoda and he needed a coat. So we had a white one. We had white Trico. It's a little brush Trico, like pajama fabric. And we would do with, we went with the markers, made it stiff, couldn't get a good color. And one day, Bev, we're making white ones for him because that's all we had. And we're trying to think how we're going to dye him. Well, the writ dye doesn't take to the nylon. We went through all this stuff. And Bev leans over and puts the coat in her teacup. And it stained the, Brush Trico, the perfect color brown for Yoda. We were so excited when it came out that we just filled her teacup with coats. We had to make like about, I, I guess we made, probably made about six of them. I don't know where they, I only have one today, but I don't know what happened to them. Yoda is one of my favorite action figures ever. It will always be connected to my father since he found one and purchased it for me when I was a child. And now, knowing that my friend Kathy worked on it makes it even more special. How much do you know about Star Wars posters? 
When Danny Castle pitched the idea of doing a poster collector's roundtable, I had only a cursory knowledge of that area of our hobby. But it was a topic I was curious to explore. I wanted to know more about the history of the posters, especially the ones from the original trilogy. I wondered which ones were coveted by collectors, if fakes were a prevalent nuisance, and how the community viewed the dynamic modern posters printed for some of the newer Star Wars films and series. Danny asked his friend and fellow poster guru, Tony Van Dam to help give insight into the world of Star Wars posters. Together, they developed a discussion that delivered an overview of poster collecting, one that was both fascinating and easy to understand. I learned so much from each of them during that roundtable. I would have never guessed that the community preferred to get actors' autographs on reproductions, which preserved the originals from being marked up. And I was surprised to hear that some of the modern posters, like the ones done by artist Ollie Moss, were starting to reach similar prices to the ones from the era of the original trilogy. During our chat, I asked Danny and Tony why they thought people still collect and appreciate Star Wars posters. Here's Danny's answer, followed by Tony's. Nostalgia again. I just, looking around at my posters, I just feel all the nostalgia of the movies and and what great movies they are. My kids can look at the posters, appreciate the posters. They're huge Star Wars fans also, and they connect with the posters as well, so... I, I have I have good feelings about the next generation and how they will uh, also enjoy the posters. I don't know, looking ahead, now that posters are becoming more digital, uh, maybe having a physical paper poster might might be a nice novelty. Yeah, I, it's amazing, specific to Star Wars the amount of posters that were created for that franchise. I mean, I think James Bond had a lot, but I think Star Wars way um, encompasses um, or overshadows the amount of artwork and and different posters going from Mondo, commercial, um, even when you go, like, for example, John Williams, a lot of the posters at the Hollywood Bowl um, are Star Wars related and, and they produce posters for that too. So it's, it's just amazing how many types of posters um, there are, and each, each type appeals to maybe a different kind of person and a different taste. So that's what keeps it going. And I, what's really surprised me, again, is that um, alternative movie poster market, um, how S- Star Wars has so flourished uh, in that market. That, that's what just amazes me, and that's what keeps my love of it uh, going. I hope to have Danny and Tony return to the podcast for a further conversation about poster collecting, as we've only brushed the surface. And I'd like to explore some areas beyond the toys this year as well. And you and I can learn about them together. December. When it comes to collecting and learning about our hobby, one of the things I look forward to is reading a new article from Ron Salvatore. Ron is one of the main contributors of content to the Star Wars Collector's Archive website, and is a fantastic writer. 
He consistently brings to light new nuggets about vintage collectibles. Ron has a knack for unearthing information that narrows the gap in our understanding of the original trilogy memorabilia. And he does so in a style that makes it feel like you're riding sidecar with him, joining him for another adventure together. Before I met Ron, I was learning about the Star Wars toys and prototypes through his writings more than a decade ago. And he's partly responsible for this podcast. The quality of his work he produced and the impact it had on my collecting education made me want to return the favor and to help others learn about the hobby. The articles he published this year were some of my favorites. They were informative and humorous, and that's a difficult balance to master. And I wanted to make sure his writings were on your radar, because I think you'd learn a lot from him as well. So I asked Ron if he would be interested in having a conversation with me, in which we discuss his approach to researching and covering these collector topics. We decided to make it a two-episode series, with each part covering the articles published from one half of the year. And the second part expanded into a third episode, giving us an in-depth and memorable conversation about Star Wars, the toys, the collecting clubs, and what the hobby means to each of us. And in total, the three-episode series clocked in at more than four hours long. I wanted to share a tiny snippet with you from my conversation with Ron. Many collectors know about the Early Bird Certificate, the first Star Wars action figure-related release from Kenner, and how it was basically designed to buy Kenner time while the company produced the figures it promised to kids all around the country. But very few have ever looked into how the Early Bird Certificate was received by the general public. Did parents like the idea, especially as a gift for their children during the holiday season? And were retailers happy about selling what actually amounted to an IOU? In researching the episode, Ron dug up some really interesting information about the certificate, including a key quote about the certificate's production. That shocking blurb he found in a 1978 article stuck with me, and I will never forget it. And I certainly think it's worth revisiting now. So here's Ron in episode 115 to explain what happened to a large chunk of the early bird certificates. My favorite thing in this article is just the, the guy, the interview with the guy who was at the cardboard, comp the packaging company that got the license for um, making the displays and the actual envelopes. Daniel McCullough? Yeah, uh, was that his name? Mm -hmm. um, the guy from Garfield, the Packaging Corp of America, I think it is. Um, that was probably my favorite article I found related to this. Uh, and just the, the idea that, okay, Kenner has to contract out a company to actually package these things up. So they send them the certificates and everything. And this company packages them and puts them in the store displays and ships them out. And, you know, all like the security around this, um, so they, because of the certificates were, could basically re be redeemed for, you know, a product worth whatever it was, you know, 10 bucks or whatever, like they had actual value. So they didn't want people stealing the certificates. So they had like Pinkerton guards, you know, guarding this thing, you know, around the clock, uh, which is fascinating. And then it gives you some production numbers where it's like, um, 
a million of them were made and like 500,000 of them were pulped at the end of the day, which is fascinating too. I've never seen numbers put out for how many of these things were actually put out there. The final episode of the year was also the perfect way to celebrate the holidays. During the first weekend in December, I traveled to the Lancaster region of Pennsylvania for a meetup at collector Mike DiStefano's home. Mike called the event Sithmas, and more than 70 people from four different Star Wars collecting clubs attended the event. We participated in a white bantha gift exchange, ate dinner together, played pool and table hockey, and spent the day catching up with one another and laughing. I wanted to capture as much of the event as I could to bring it to you so you might join us for Sithmas next year. One of my favorite memories from that day was taking a late-night tour of Mike's Star Wars collection. Chris Riley joined Mike and me as we traveled from room to room, exploring the vintage and modern items, as well as the collector swag and personal pieces that made Mike's collection so memorable. I'll leave you with a little snippet from that tour as Mike explains the jaw-dropping centerpiece from his collection. It sits in the center of the room, and I can truly say I've never seen anything like this before. So you're clearly referring to the full Death Star. And by full Death Star, it's the question, how many licks does it get, take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? And so how many Death Stars, vintage Death Stars, does it take to make a full Death Star? A full, a full circular Death Star. Yeah. yeah. So there are the answer to that question is there are nine. <laughs> it takes nine vintage Death Stars to make a full circular yeah. Death Star. So over time, over a long period of time, from the one I got as a child to the one I found riding my bike home after playing basketball, and I had a choice to make: do I ditch my basketball or do I take the Death Star home because it was out for trash? And I ditched the basketball and rode home as fast as I could with the Death Star and then rode back as fast as I could to get my basketball because my brother probably would have kicked my butt if I didn't bring the basketball back. And so I had two, and then I picked up another one from a friend in the Pennsylvania club, and then three turned into four and four turned into five, and I thought the answer was seven. Wrong. When you put seven (laughs) together, it turns out that it actually takes nine of them to do. So... A few years ago, I displayed it for the first time, put it out on the pool table I had, not where it's at now, and I showed it to my friend, Tom Rothenberger, and I mentioned his name because he said, well, you know, technically, Mike, you don't have a full Death Star because you don't have the bottom half. (laughs) And I'm like, Tom, I hate you and love you at the same time because of the way you look at it. So what we did to simulate the effect of the bottom half of the Death Star was not buy nine more. That would have been crazy because then they'd all be upside down and it wouldn't work. work. So what we did is we put a really big mirror underneath to simulate uh, the bottom half. So when you're looking down at it, it looks like there's literally another Death Star below it. And we put it on top of black Besta cases from Ikea to simulate a space scene. So... Uh, that's it. We have Death Star stuff going on. Um, there's all kinds of action figures around running the guns or in the trash compactor or sitting at the controls. And it's a fun little escape and a place to play. And every now and then we change things a little bit differently. 
The only other one that I'm aware of is a fellow out in Kentucky has uh, put together also a full circle uh, of it, too. And yeah. it's kind of fun to see when he shares pictures with it every now and then. It's amazing. So all the elevators, which you know was the, the piece that kind of formed the frame of it, um, are in the inside. There's sort of an inside hub. And then from that, it gets wider as it goes out, um, almost like a, like a pizza pie. Um, but it just... To have all of these, you know, complete and, and with the um, the cardboard backing around it and everything like that, it just, I'm seeing something that I've seen all my life, but in a way that I've never seen it in person before. Yeah, it's quite the centerpiece, and that's why it is in the center of the room, because it, it was my favorite toy, Star Wars toy, growing up, because you could do so much with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Death Star is iconic. Yes, it blows up at the end, but uh, <laughs> we, we, we never have, even since then, gotten quite a place. I guess you could say the Katana was something quite as immersive, sure. but from a vintage line, this was the most complete thing we got in terms of the Death Star Yes. Um, on a three and three quarter inch scale. Mm-hmm. And so to put nine of them together, it's pretty fun and pretty cool to see. It took a long time to do, but it really has been fun talking to people today about how that literally can be one heck of a centerpiece. So that is a look back at 2022 from a collector's perspective. I had planned on publishing this two-part series in the final weeks of the year, between Christmas and New Year's. But 2022 had one last surprise in store for me. And by the middle of December, my entire family and I came down with COVID. The virus knocked me flat on my back for more than a month. I couldn't speak without coughing and my mind and body were completely wiped out. For a long time, I couldn't even think or concentrate. I had no energy, and I certainly couldn't tackle a podcast episode. It really was one of the strangest experiences. But the downtime eventually turned out to be a positive thing for this series. It gave me time to properly reflect on the year when I was able to do so. Before I became sick, I went back and began to listen to the episodes from the year during my daily bike rides. And these episodes brought back some wonderful memories. Oftentimes, when we get to the end of the year, we have a bit of a highlight reel in our minds. But the vast majority of our days and weeks go largely forgotten. They seep into a blurry drift. And it really is hard to get an accurate representation of our year as a result. But revisiting the podcast episodes gave me a fuller perspective on the aspect of my life tied to collecting and Star Wars. In a sense, it was a journal that documented both the topics I covered on a weekly basis, as well as what was happening around me and internally. But the true joy in listening back on a year of podcast episodes is the excitement within the world of collecting. This year, I traveled to my friends' homes for club meetups and collection tours. After three years, I returned to Fishkill for another momentous annual event. I learned about different areas of our hobby, 
like The World of Soft Goods and an overview about poster collecting. I did a deep dive into some of the larger Star Wars auctions and did so with a friend. And when I couldn't be with them, my friends brought the collector's weekends to me. They recorded themselves at Celebration and recounted tales from the Cincinnati Toy Show weekend. And we received new Star Wars stories as well. The Book of Boba Fett and the Obi-Wan Kenobi series were released this year. And Andor was a game-changer that renewed my excitement in galactic storytelling. I attended toy shows like Zolocon and the Delaware Oktoberfest. The Empire State Club celebrated its 10th anniversary, we officially lived through a decade of Star Wars under Disney, and the podcast crossed the milestone 100-episode mark. But amidst all of this were the conversations and moments I had with friends and our fellow collectors. And as those memories flashed through my mind, the brightest ones were always in the company of others. I hope 2022 was a great year for you. I can't wait to see what 2023 brings. I have a very good feeling about it. If you enjoyed this series, please help spread the word about the podcast. Share an episode with a friend who might be looking for Star Wars collecting content. And if any of the episodes from this year stuck out to you, please leave a review on your preferred podcast platform, especially on Apple Podcasts. When it comes to content and production, there are things I do to try to make this the best Star Wars podcast. But in reality, my goal is to be your favorite Star Wars podcast. I want it to contain a bit of the magic that we had growing up with the films and series that still resonates with us to this day. I want it to be immersive, to be connective, and to capture that essence that makes collecting and the community a worthwhile part of our lives. And again, I'm so thankful that you've taken time out from your busy schedule to join me in these adventures. Thanks in advance for leaving a review and for sharing this with a friend. Here's to a wonderful 2023. Let's continue our exploration of an amazing galaxy together on Star Wars, Prototypes, and Production.